0: my name is Tara
1: Hoag. Uh, I grew up in Red Deer, Alberta, which is in between Calgary and Edmonton (laughs) but it's also on the border between Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 territory and the border is the original route, trading route of the Métis. Um, My father was Métis uh, and French Canadian and my mother uh, immigrated to Canada from Holland when she was 13. So, I currently live in unceded Coast Salish territories, uh, Vancouver, BC, so that's Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations. And I've been here for, for the past uh, eight years. And I work at Grant Gallery, which is an artist-run center, uh, as well as working independently as a curator and a writer.
2: And when did you begin your journey as a curator?
1: Well, kind of when I came to Vancouver, but the longer road took me first to Queen's University in Ontario, where I studied art history. And I kind of fell into that. I mean, I was always interested in the arts, and my mother uh, works in Needlepoint, and she has this amazing business based out of our home where she would work with these antique samplers and uh, she would we would travel together to these museums in the US and in Europe where I would get to go into the archives of these places and so you know when I was little I always thought I was wanted to be an Egyptologist (laughs) (laughs) so art history just kind of like came naturally for me but I decided that I didn't want to go. Um, I didn't want to stay within the stream of academia. I wanted to to work with living artists, and you know, not that academics don't don't do that, but that's kind of why I got into the curatorial um, activities. And when I moved out to Vancouver, is when I started my masters at UBC in the curatorial studies program. Well. that was a year after I moved to Vancouver because I didn't get accepted the first
2: time I applied, which says a lot for
1: perseverance, I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk about your experiences with curation of what you've done with Grunt Gallery? Like, um, what's your, what's your path been so far with Grunt?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I've been working at Grunt since 2014 and, I began in a residency from the BC arts council, which is called an early career development grant. And the residency was focused on research and I wanted to research indigenous feminisms and and art. And, you know, I spent a year doing that. And it really, I think it takes you a year length of time to get acclimatized to a place to figure out, you know, how everything works and to learn about the history of the place in a more, like, embedded way. And so in that time, I started uh, curating projects from Grunt's submission process. Uh, Grunt is one of the few artist-run centres, at least on the West Coast, that curates in part by submissions. Uh, But at the same time, I was sort of starting to develop ideas for, you know, what I might want to do for a project coming out of my research. And that didn't really get formulated until we started working on call response because the reconciliation uh, grant from the Canada Council was announced and it just seems like a good way to sort of shift the research that I was doing into a more specific form. But I've also worked on a number of other different projects with Grant Gallery and working here is so great because it's a small team, um, you know, there's three people that are, full, that are staff and then there's um, some contract curators like myself and it's been a great experience working here and the grant obviously has a has a long history of supporting indigenous artists and curators so before myself doing the residency there was Dinah Warren who's now the director of urban shaman gallery in Winnipeg and Tanya Willard who is working with me on this project is another former curatorial resident here so it has a as a great history to you know engage with which is one of the really exciting parts of of working here.
2: I keep my head high. I got my wings to
0: carry me. I don't know freedom. I got my drink.
2: How do you feel your um studies of indigenous feminism has become a thread in the hashtag call response project and can you talk about the fact that it is all women involved in this project
1: yeah absolutely I think it's uh it's central to the project it's threaded through every aspect of you know um, beginning with what artists we wanted to work with and how we wanted to respond to the whole context of reconciliation. You know, our thinking was that we didn't want to start from reconciliation. We wanted to start with the women that we were working with. And, you know, the presence alone of indigenous women is a radical thing when you consider the history of colonialism and heteropatriarchy that we have been subjected to and survived through (laughs) and so we wanted to start with the good work that these women are doing within their communities whether their communities are you know at home on the res or where they live and work in brooklyn Mm -hmm. you know we wanted to really go to where these women were at And support the work that they're already doing and I think that's a I think that that is a feminist sort of ethos in itself and in doing so in the context of this project around reconciliation we wanted to to think about well how can we shift this discussion because reconciliation is a hot topic and there are some uh, writers who've really convincingly argued that reconciliation has become an industry in and of itself uh, that doesn't necessarily address things like uh, land repatriation and you know these other urgent issues that are facing our communities. So by centering women, we thought we could shift that discussion in some ways to, you know, to talk about the things that are important to these women and to their communities and, and also to respond to reconciliation, but not to center it.
2: Mm. And can you talk about the women who you are basically co-curating um, Hashtag Call Response? Can you talk about your relationship to them and introduce us a little bit further to who they are?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um,
1: It's funny because Maria Hupfield and Tanya Willard, who are my co-organizers, we're calling ourselves organizers now rather than curators. Uh, Okay, okay,
2: good to know. (laughs) The
1: language is always
2: shifting. (laughs) Awesome.
1: Uh, So when the reconciliation grant was first announced, Maria and Tanya are two artists whose work that I look to to ground my thoughts thinking around how the project might develop, and that's because um, Maria has a long practice as a performer who inserts her body as an indigenous, as a woman, uh, that body into institutional spaces where she takes up space for herself and for other indigenous women, which is part of the project that she's really been working on for call response, which is called post-performance conversation action, where they, she basically does this performance slash artist talk where she invites guests, uh, like Alanisa Bomsawin or Cheryl, Rondell and Ursula Johnson into conversation to talk about, their work as Indigenous women and the need to create space for us. And so I really admire Maria's practice. And then Tanya's work uh, is, you know, they both have such multifaceted practices. But one aspect of Tanya's work that I was thinking about was Bush Gallery. So Bush Gallery is a residency, a residency on the res. <laughs> <laughs> where uh she's been working over the past couple of years with her collective Peter Moran and Gabriel Rondell Hill and the collective it's got this long acronym I'm not going to get it right it's the new BC Indian Arts and Crafts Welfare Society or something like that it has like seven seven letters so, so sorry Tanya for butchering <laughs> that <laughs> But they, So a lot of the activities that they do are thinking about like, you know, there aren't. we don't have any artist-run centers or galleries of contemporary art on the res. What does it mean to have a gallery on the res? What does it mean to make art with and for the land and plants and animals and waters? So I just think that that is such a... Uh, great and important and urgent kind of line of questioning is sort of like a, another poll uh, of the call response project. So as soon as we start, as soon as the three of us started talking about call response, the whole idea for it just blossomed in such a great way. And it was so organic and natural. And, you know, we had so many good intense conversations about what direction the project uh, should and needed to take. So, yeah, it kind of developed from there.
2: Hmm. And what do you maybe hope, I know hope is such a loaded word, but what do you maybe hope the lasting impact of the call response project may be for for Indigenous women, for Canada, uh, for reconciliation? Well, I hope maybe at a more basic level, We're we're
1: hoping to tour Call Response around Canada and into the U.S. and maybe even over to Europe. And I think in doing that, the project will expand in different ways and create space for other Indigenous women and uh, create space in other communities with other, like, local service organizations or collectives um because that in in each location that the show tours to will do you know a set of programming that's specific to that city you know that that does work in collaboration with um local organizations and collectives and so i guess you know that is to say that my hope that My hope is that we can do that work in a good way where the show ends up going to so that the project can evolve and create those spaces to have conversation and to come together because we're all so busy, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's, so there's lots of other amazing indigenous women and artists who are doing great work. So I want to connect with them and connect them to other publics or to support their work. So that's kind of, you know, like the broad aims of this project. And in terms of reconciliation in Canada, you know, I think that we've been having a conversation about reconciliation in Canada and about reconciliation and the arts in Canada for the past number of years and there's been so much good work and good critical work that's been done and I hope that call response can just be part of that can add something to that conversation that you know refocuses dialogue around around women and the knowledge that they hold and the skills that they have and you know the 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 need to support them more
2: mm. so mm-hmm. and it's really interesting because um i mean i've been working um doing interviews for this project over the past year basically since february yeah. and i've seen the language shift and the intention shift around reconciliation and what that means to everybody since our first initial interview and, and how what have the challenges been as you all are kind of um, unwrapping this term reconciliation and having it in your face in this way through this project? What, what are some of the challenges that you have faced?
1: Well, I think, you know, language. Language is a huge hurdle uh, because, you know, well, reconciliation isn't an indigenous concept. I mean, we probably have uh similar concepts in our in our languages but reconciliation as it exists in you know contemporary discourses has been framed in a certain way and has uh you know multiple different i guess hopes or things that people kind of expect out of out of reconciliation and so you that's like a lot of Terrain to navigate because you uh, have survivors who need to have space to share their stories if they want to, but then on the other hand, you have this sort of display of trauma for public consumption and. We, while on the one hand we certainly need to improve our relations as indigenous peoples with the wider Canadian and American with the settler and immigrant population you know we need to we need to always be bettering our relations uh, there there is also a lack of discussion you know around land and the fact that you know Our communities, many of our northern communities go without clean drinking water and that uh, resource development companies are allowed to push through their major projects without really much of a second thought to how that affects our communities. Mm. Um, And so there's just there's so much to grapple with. in in all of that. And so, you know, one of the things that really shifted in the language around our project was that at the beginning, we talked about the work that indigenous women do as being part of a healing process. And we've kind of removed that word healing from the project description, because I think healing is something that's often talked about in relation to reconciliation. Uh, and rightfully so because uh, because you know people have a lot of healing that they need to do uh, and they need help to do that healing Um, but it's it's also not something that we can force people to do you know we can't force people to be okay with with what happened or what is happening you know we have every right to be angry uh, and so we didn't. We wanted to let the projects do the, the work that they needed to do, without forcing them to uh, be accountable for some sort of healing process.
2: Yeah. No. It seems really important to not um imp- like impose a resolution for the artists working working through something as heavy as reconciliation, because it seems after after speaking to many of the artists and talking to them that. At the end of their work, there's only more questions regarding, <laughs> regarding reconciliation, you know, mm-hmm. in, in going through this.
1: That's not to say that we don't have something very strong to say with this project, because I think that we do. You know, I think that the, the language around call and response is very much about a call to action and about thinking through... You know how to be good accomplices or allies mm. with indigenous women and, and the work that they're doing so you know that maybe that is part of reconciliation too mm. you know yeah <laughs> they're all such these terms are also shifting take us to take the stars the
0: we have the, the sun the eternal one Words will come, the words in come. I see the sacrifice that fellas made. Stories of women came. I've seen some dancers sacrificing for better days. We've been brainwashed, proud as a boy problem, working hard for a better change. I can flick that night in your old brothers been a bay. Boy, kind of like brand dumb paraphrase, better say, but
2: I wanted to ask you about um your personal experience curating or organizing this project—how um, <laughs> has it? How has it been working over such a large, expansive time and over such large, expansive, expansive region um, with so many artists?
1: It's been.
2: And you, well, can be, like the- and you can be as honest as you want. Like- yeah, no,
1: I'm, just, I'm thinking to myself that I don't want the first thing that I say to be that it's been challenging in certain regards because there's been so much that has been awesome about it. It's all been so awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the things that are challenging about it are that we very much want the project to be in a collective spirit, But all of the artists are obviously working within their own locations and you know they're they're not isolated from their communities because they're they're doing their work in their communities um but are have they have been isolated from one another and in some cases they've even kind of been isolated from us because they're off doing this work that they need to be doing like you know for example christy belcourt and isaac murdoch doing ceremony with the land and the waters and the animals. They've been traveling like the whole summer. Christy said that she thinks she slept in her bed for like a week in the past like five months or something like that. They're so busy. They're so busy traveling around to these different gatherings on governance and land-based knowledge. And throughout all of that, they've been doing their call response project which is ceremony and so that project needs to happen with the land and it needs to happen with the people that it's happening with in the there and now you know um so for us as organizers the challenge is how to talk about support and represent that work within you know the context of the project with its, you know, wh- where, where you need to like communicate about things and, you know, mm-hmm. to sh- how to show that that work is, that that work is being done. So, and we won't, you know, the exciting part of it all is that we won't really know until everything is here in the gallery, how that, how it's all going to look together, how it's all going to come together. I mean, on the one hand, We have this, you know, very developed internal dialogue that has been going on where, you know, we've been in many conversations as organizers and with the artists about, you know, our thoughts around the project and how we want it to be shaped. And I've been writing about the project and uh, we've been developing the website and but all of this has kind of been happening behind the scenes to some, to some degree. So that would be one of the things that is in a way challenging, but also exciting. And then, I mean, the other thing would be just that I've, I haven't worked on a project, uh, like this before because the works are all commissions. It's all new work that's being created for, for the exhibition so i've i've worked on other large-scale projects where there has been some commissions and then you know other works that were borrowed so just that sort of like you know that really heavy emphasis on process in the project is uh creates us you know certain challenges that you have to deal with but but all of it is
2: great. <laughs> <laughs> and so are all of the artists um, presenting a physical object of some sort for the, um, for the exhibition that's going to be coming up?
1: Uh, no.
2: Uh, it,
1: the works in the exhibition will really vary in uh, their medium. So a lot of the projects are performative or performance-based. So there will be some performance documentation, like there's three performances that are happening around the opening on the same day of the opening. Uh, Maria is going to be doing a performance at Emily Carr University with her respondents, Ivy Castellanos and Esther Neff. Uh, they've created sort of a new performance for their contribution. That's called Feet on the Ground and it's this performative workshop to decolonize yourself. Mm. And so, Yeah, from that performance, they will be showing a toolbox that they use in the performance. Uh, Ursula Johnson will also be doing her Land Sings project, which she did earlier in the year in in Toronto, and she'll be working with three uh, language speakers and singers from the local three nations, so Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, to do this durational song-based performance. So then the audio of that will be recorded and that that audio will be in the gallery. And then uh, Lackalook Williamson Bathory and Tanya Tagak will be performing at the opening as well. And they'll be doing a live soundscape to the performance that Lackalook had documented on video that she did in Ikaluit. So there'll be documentation of both of those performances in the exhibition. Um, Christy and Isaac decided they were actually they were gifted a buffalo robe from Grand Chief Derek Nepinak. Um, sorry if I mispronounced the last name. And so they decided to paint a record of the ceremony that they've been doing over the last year onto this buffalo robe. So that will be included in the exhibition. Uh, Tanya is working with the film, uh, the Shuswap Indians of British Columbia by the anthropologist harlan ingersoll smith and so she'll be doing an installation that's that's based around that film so the works are you know they vary from objects to documentation to installation Uh, and i'm starting to gain a clearer picture in my head now of really how that's all going to come together
2: that must be exciting to <laughs> it, finally have the visual in your head <laughs> it is it is
1: it, it's taken some time and you know things are continuously changing and and developing but I think it's going to, I think it's going to be great. I keep saying it's great a lot, but I'm excited. It's opening in like less than two weeks. So, <laughs> so it's here, it's here, it's time.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, it is great. It's, it's so important and it's just, I just love the variation in, in mediums that, that are coming about for the actual showcase. And how long is the exhibition going to be running for at Grunt Gallery? So it runs from October 29th
1: until December 10th at the grant. And once the exhibition is open, we're going to start working on a catalog to accompany the project. And we'll be doing a series of smaller programs during the run of the project, which is where we'll work with the local service organizations and collectives, like I mentioned to you. So that's still in development and, uh, so I don't want to say too much about it right now, except, you know, keep your ears to the ground for that upcoming stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've been asking everybody this, and we've already touched on it quite a bit in, in this interview, but how would you personally interpret reconciliation? Like, what what does that term mean to you?
1: You know, it means, it means so many things to me, um, and I've been working on projects uh, that consider art and reconciliation together since 2012 because after I graduated from UBC I was asked to stick around and uh, be one of the co-curators on an exhibition called Witnesses Art in Canada's Indian Residential Schools. And at the same time, I was also co-curating an exhibition called Net Going Out of the Darkness, which was uh, an exhibition um, of art by residential school survivors, their descendants. And that was through um, Emily Carr University and Malaspina Printmakers. So, and I say that because my... Uh, sense of what reconciliation means has been continuously evolving over over that time and I've you know, I've gone through many feelings about reconciliation including, you know all out refusal of this term as being something that's, you know another instance of uh, the state wanting to apply a structure for indigenous people to exist within but then also realizing that you know for survivors the truth and reconciliation process is complicated and you know is something that a lot of people needed Uh, and not wanting to impose my own way of thinking about reconciliation as like this theoretical thing onto their experience. Um, You know, personally I prefer the term conciliation over reconciliation because it really gets to the, uh, gets to the idea that, you know, we need to create better relationships uh, rather than, there was this relationship that existed at one time that we need to go back to, you know, our relationship, indigenous people's relationship to the state has always been fraught and will probably always be fraught. Uh, there are just some things that are not reconcilable, but we can try to come together and have better relationships. Yeah. So conflicted and complex, yeah,
2: it sounds relationship like with reconciliation is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a complicated relationship. <laughs> an ever changing yeah. one, ups and downs. <laughs> but Absolutely. the funding the funding for this project is in part through an initiative regarding reconciliation, is that correct?
1: Yes, and so the the Canada Council uh Did this amazing thing where they teamed up with the J.W. McConnell Foundation and the Circle on Philanthropy and Aboriginal Peoples in Canada to create this initiative. And Steve Loft, who is the program officer um, at the Canada Council, also similarly, I think, did it, you know, deserves a lot of credit for the way that they formed the call for projects. Because in the call, they did not stipulate, you know, how reconciliation should be considered or framed. They, The emphasis on the proposals was really to be uh, define what communities you want to work with and why. And, you know, all of the other terms were up to the, you know, the project proposers, basically. So they were very um, careful in how they approached the framing of that project. Mm. You know, you weren't, you, you know, we didn't have to be like, this is how we're going to engage non-Indigenous audiences. We didn't even have to do that if we didn't want to. <laughs> 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 uh and but you know obviously Grant is you know a public institution so there's uh, different forms of engagement that are taking place all the time here, um, and uh, you know the projects do the projects do respond to reconciliation each in their own way, each with their own definition of what reconciliation might mean you know Christy and Isaac refuse the idea that reconciliation can be with. Uh, Other non-indigenous people until indigenous people reconcile themselves with with the land Mm. Uh, While you know um, Tanya focuses on language loss Maria focuses on on bringing Indigenous women into into institutional spaces to fundamentally change the way that those spaces operate So there's you know a lot of different ways that the project addresses reconciliation Or conciliation, (laughs) (laughs) which is, that's an awkward word too, but you know.
2: (laughs) Well, you got to start somewhere, you know, (laughs) break it down, break it down so you can build it back up. And speaking of language, so if you don't mind me asking, if you feel like sharing, why why did you all decide to move away from the term curators and into the term organizers for this project? What was, what was that intention?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest, you'd have to ask Maria about that one because that's her, that was her idea. And okay. I I get it because it has a lot, I think it has a lot to do with uh, hierarchical language. Mm. Um, so, You know, the idea that the curator has, I don't know, you know, like the curator has some sort of authorial power over everything (laughs) that's happening. (laughs) (laughs) We were really guided by the artists. But, you know, me as a curator, someone who calls myself a curator, I would say that, that that is absolutely always part of my role as a curator is to be guided by the artists and to uh, work in, you know, try to foster a more collaborative relationship with the people that I'm working with that, you know, does take into account the balance of power in this, in this relationship and tries to, I don't know, circumvent that in different ways.
2: Yeah. So that's kind of where I think that that comes from. Hmm and what what do you feel like the term "curator" means to you?
0: <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: you know, this I always really like that that the word "curator" is closely associated with with the idea of caring for something. I absolutely see the role, my role as a curator as a facilitator as someone who can help bridge an artist's work with different publics and support their work by creating critical dialogue around it and, you know, programming or uh, putting it into conversation with other works. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's kind of how I... Try to work as a curator? Caring and sharing. (laughs) (laughs) That's cheesy as hell.
2: (laughs) No, but it does seem like a a very important um, part of curation, from what I've been coming to understand, is being caring and thoughtful um, to each artist's needs, you know, and, and, speaking to them on an individual level and finding how that you can accommodate and make them feel good and also show their work in a way that fits into the programming yeah and i think
1: you know i think that as an indigenous curator and uh you know i'm i'm metis and so i want to say that i use the term indigenous in a specific way um but as an indigenous curator i think it's also important that like as a curator I don't I'm not going to like remain in the background like a producer you know I think it's important to through through my curatorial work I've been able to like to position myself ethically within the world as you know how I want my relationships with other people to be and Uh, It's about, you know, sort of situating where you come from and being responsible to to that and to the people that you're working with. And um, so there's, you know, there's responsibilities that come with the
2: caring and sharing, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the ultimate mother role. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) That's That's
2: right.
1: But we don't want to infantilize the artists they're not they're not our children
2: <laughs> no I know as soon as I said that I was like ah language again <laughs> I know right the trap <laughs> <laughs> So has there been a shift or change in your life or work that has led you um, into what you're curating now as an indigenous curator, um, focusing on kind of feminist indigeneity? Like, was there a turning point in your life that made you decide, like, this is the work that I'm going to be doing?
1: You know, there's no there's no like definitive moment. I think I've been on this path. For a long time since i started you know and when i went to university for the first time i did as many women's studies courses as i did art history courses and i i just felt my whole world opening up in so many amazing ways and i just i feel like we are at this moment right now where it's it is possible to have difficult and complex conversations about the way that you know our experience of indigeneity intersects with our gender and uh, our class and you know uh, how how different our experiences of indigeneity are and you know myself I wasn't raised in a metis culture uh, my father passed when I was young and he was raised kind of in and out of foster care and so it's really been through my work that I've been able to myself identify with my indigeneity and come to um, and come to think about what you know what that what what that means what those histories are and you know growing like having certainly grown up in a settler context you know what my responsibilities are and I feel I've been given a lot of opportunity and I recognize that you know I had good funding for schooling I've received grants and so I really just feel like it's my absolute responsibility to create space and opportunities for other indigenous women um and i think that you know if we're thinking about um like indigenous belief systems or what what like basic tenets of an indigenous feminist like thought might be i think i think that responsibility and reciprocity it would be like absolutely at the core of you know how we would think about about indigenous feminisms, you know, that's at least how I would think about it. Mm. And so I think that, uh, that sense of responsibility is definitely something that, that drives me. And also just because there's, you know, there's so many people that are doing such amazing, thought-provoking, exciting work in, in this area, you know, and it's so urgent. And I think it really speaks to how art can, has a role to play in these conversations, a really, a really urgent role. Um, yeah. So that's what, that's how I think about that, I guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and what, and can you dive in a little bit deeper on, um, on what you feel like the role of art can be in these conversations? Like what maybe have you witnessed art contributing to opening up these conversations and allowing space maybe for for people to be able to begin to engage in ways that they might not have been if art were not a tool
1: Mm -hmm. art art provokes us uh it stimulates our senses and our intellects in different ways than you know numbers and and words on a page there's something experiential about art that is if you choose to engage with it in in that way you know um i think that we're used to being passive consumptors of information and and images you know so there there is that you know that art can absolutely fall into that trap as well um but in my experience art provides a staging ground for complex dialogue to happen and to imagine you know future alternatives to the current status quo as well as you know a way to keep knowledge of of our past in these different forms you know Mm. Um, so I think that it has it has many roles to play in that regard
2: and what is your dream project if there were no (laughs) restrictions on time or money what would you curate or create what would what's in the back of your head there that you're thinking God, that is an impossible question, Ginger. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna like go a, like a little bit smaller scale than that, and just like I would love to, you know, as a curator, I love thinking about curating, and I um, have plans to someday, I think, write a book. You know, don't hold me to it if I don't do it, but. <laughs> about what it means to you know, curate while indigenous or to curate indigenous art. We have so many discussions about what indigenous art is, which is obviously central to what curating indigenous art means. Um, but I, you know, I would love to have the space and time to think through that uh, maybe on a global scale with indigenous people from, from all around the world. So that's kind of a dream project
2: and yeah. and speaking of like literature and like resource for curating as an indigenous person or curating indigenous work, has there been any any specific works or curators or anything that's influenced you that you may be able to share that could point people in the right direction if this is a path they're considering traveling?
1: yeah, absolutely I mean the where to start (laughs) (laughs) the banff center for the arts did a series of uh symposium and conferences on curating that started in the 90s and you know if you want if you're interested in like looking at the phenomena of what curating is i think that's that's a really great place to start and there's also been a lot of indigenous voices included in that conversation from from the beginning or i don't know if from the beginning but certainly throughout throughout those events and the BAMP center has like a great indigenous uh residence arts residency program um so there's that uh candace hopkins is a curator that i would definitely uh that i that I definitely admire and has been involved with some of the programming uh, at the BAMP center. Um, but there's, you know, there's so many great people doing things locally and abroad like uh, France Chapanier is a, is a curator who uh, works on Vancouver Island uh, in Victoria. She's been working at this gallery called open space and open space has this uh, indigenous youth arts program that they have been working on for the past couple of years and they're going to change the name of that program soon but I met with some of the the young women that participated in that program and you know not all of them had been artists before this was something that was new to them the idea that you know that they could pursue this seriously and Franz it was just obviously so good at creating a space for them to be vulnerable together and to um, move through those difficult conversations and come to a point where they're confident and excited about the possibilities of, of, of making art. Um, And so I think that that's just a really good, great example of how these institutional spaces that can often seem Closed off to Indigenous communities, you know, uh, it is possible to to open them up and to um, have a space that is informed by Indigenous worldviews and methodologies and practices that you know that contemporary art and and the you know Indigenous what what it means to be Indigenous the you know customary practices. Ceremony, all of those things, they can they can come together in really interesting ways. So you know, there's things like that that are inspiring me all the time. And one other one other shout out is um, a book called The Land We Are by um, Sophie McCall and Gabrielle Rondell Hill, which um, talks about art and reconciliation and the land. And that book came out I don't know maybe it's a couple years ago now, and I keep it close to my bed because I love it and I read it all the time. And I live in a trailer, so I don't like have a lot of
2: room for books. So <laughs> You're like, this is my <laughs> one book. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it, it is one of my one books. And that book is just, it uh, is so excellent in the way that they gathered all of the material together and each piece has its own space to breathe and to deal with um, to deal with whatever it needs to deal with. And then they wrote just a a really amazing introduction. Um, and I think that that book holds a lot of possibilities for thinking about, um, the intersections between indigenous, uh, artists and, uh, you know, people of color, queer artists. It's just a great publication. So.
2: And is it is it a newer publication? Has it come out like in the last ten years? Yeah, it, I
1: like. I think I went. I went to the book launch, and I can't remember if it was like a year ago or two years ago. But it's I'm pretty sure that it's published by um, ARP Publishing. Mm.
0: Um,
1: yeah, so it's it's a good one to check out, but. Also, well, final, one last final (laughs) shout-out. Richard William Hill is this um, uh, curator and art historian who is now living in Vancouver and teaching at Emily Carr, or he's like the Canada. He's a Canada research chair, and he's been writing this series of columns for Canadian Art Magazine, which are all published online that talk about the history of Indigenous exhibitions And he's like, this is like a part of his research process towards a book that he's creating about indigenous art in like the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, if you're interested in like the history of exhibitions about indigenous art, those are really great to check out and they come out, they come out monthly, so... You know there's there's things and people that are happening all the time and I'm so inspired by it all that it's so overwhelming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you feel like there's a no I mean growing up going to um museum exhibitions with your mother when you were younger do you feel like there's a notable shift in the consciousness of indigenous um Art showcasing and curation have in your lifetime have you noticed a shift personally?
1: Oh well, absolutely, because you know I mentioned earlier that I want that I thought I wanted to be an Egyptologist, when I was little. <laughs> and I was thinking about that because it's like you know here is this field like anthropology or art history that that presents. A people and a culture as a like an object of study you know and, and an object to be studied and to be written about in academics and you know that whole kind of you know history of thinking about other cultures besides European culture and I mean so that shift for me personally was has been so profound because I've been to many like European and Western institutions. And you know, that that is still in a lot of ways how indigenous people are, are presented as, as objects. But at the same time, we're in this moment and I feel very fortunate to have like entered the field at this time but also, you know, it's, it's not just about me as like a prof- in a professional context. It's me in a personal context and as a human being to have to be, you know, to be coming and adults and a professional and, you know, all of that shit <laughs> at this time because there's so much good work that's happening and there's this crazy amount of uh, support for the art for Indigenous arts in Canada right now and um like just this year in Vancouver there's been like six like really good kind of like discursive events that have been talking like dedicated to indigenous arts and I was just up in Whitehorse for the uh, gathering of the Aboriginal Curatorial Collective which is indigenous artists and curators from across Canada and they honored all of these elder artists from up in the northern BC and the Yukon and it's just like there's you know there's more people that I'm learning about all all the time and there's more opportunities for them so that's you know that's exciting and that's groundbreaking and uh we just have to keep the momentum going you know <laughs>
0: last section
2: is um, your soapbox moment if you could say one thing to the world using this podcast as your platform what would it be it can be advice or a story or a quote a rant
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you know I knew this question was coming
1: but it doesn't make it any easier (laughs) I have been thinking about it and you know I was watching uh, Noam Chomsky this morning, so that that puts you into a particular headspace um, and just thinking about all of these really urgent things that we're facing you know globally right now um, you know you know you were just down in Dakota and mm-hmm. uh, there you know are I just feel like our uh, existence as a species is so under threat, and and why is that a struggle? Why is it a struggle to get people to see that? You know, mm. uh, everyone is uh, in some ways rightly obsessed with the U.S. election right now, uh, but at the same time, it's like Russia and the U.S. are militarizing more and more all the time. You know, it's crazy to think about the, the, that the threat of nuclear war is actually increasing right now, uh, you know, in a big way, and that that's not something that's, like, on our radar <laughs> mm. as much as it needs to be. You know, and these – it's just, like, we live in we live in this time where – There's so much information. We're onslaughted with information every day. And so, and we, you know, we all have to live life in our own ways. You know, we all have to do what we have to do to survive, but I just feel like we need to become a lot more uh, conscious of the consequences of our actions. And I think that you know a lot of a lot of those issues that we're facing are are a result of that is our collective unconsciousness of our actions, you know, because not all of us are unconscious, obviously, and indigenous people globally are uh, creating more awareness of these issues uh, than ever before. And so, There's something good in that um, struggle. But, yeah, I think it comes down to we just need to be aware of how our actions affect one another and the planet. You know, we have to become more aware of our responsibilities of our relationships. And, yeah, that's what Noam Chomsky reminded me of this morning. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's important to be reminded of that, you know. Like what are the ways that we can continue to stay reminded?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to get caught up in the in the day to day, you know. Day to day working in the art gallery. (laughs) (laughs) Even me, you know. (laughs) That's why it's so awkward to have a soapbox moment, ginger, because none of us are perfect and (laughs) we all got our problems right Mm, (laughs) yeah but if we can just yeah if we can just pay a little bit more care and attention to each other then i think we'd be in a better place oh yeah
0: this is a shout out to everyone it's time to wake wake up It's time to use your powers to help the people create the change that we need in the world today. We need you. So this is a shout out to you and you. My people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. My people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people are the mountains, no more days were counting. My people are the grass, yeah, the time has passed. My people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. My people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people are these mountains, no more days were counting. My people are the grass, yeah, the time has passed. Listen to what I have to say, because I'm here to say, ain't no pipelines laying. Down. Yeah, I'm not in my day, I ain't having that, no way This here's my life, I'm here to set this right You brought the darkness, now I bring the light And I shine so bright Cause I pray for this, every day and night Yeah, I'm here to fight the good fight So everybody stand up, raise your hands up Come on, it's time to do what we got to do It's time to bring our light together and shine through so this here's a shout out to you, you and you. Oh yeah, oh yeah My people will the sea Yo it's time to be free It's time to be free It's time to my people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. Yo. my people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people of these mountains, no more days we're counting. My people of the grass, yo, the time has passed. My people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. My people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people of these mountains, no more days we're counting. My people of the grass, yo, the time has passed. I know who I am and I know what I can do I can go to any land and be like Yo, this is just who I am Then they stand and raise their hands And be like OCM Yeah, I know this girl Yeah, I know her whole world I know her family Yeah, I know her legacy Yeah, I know exactly who she's meant to be Yeah, that's the new in me Those are the teachings that's just meant to be That's why I can stand and raise my hands and be thankful for exactly who I am This is my gift, this is what I gotta do This is how I shine through So come on and take my hand And let's walk this land Let's do this together Because we were sent here to be forever Yo, my people of the sea Yo, it's time to be free Yo, my people of the sky yeah, it's time to fly my people are these mountains, no more days we're counting. you my people of the grass, yeah the time is past Yeah the time has passed. My people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. Yo. My people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people of these mountains, no more days we're counting. My people of the grass, yet a time has passed. My people of the sea, yo, it's time to be free. My people of the sky, yo, it's time to fly. My people of these mountains, no more days we're counting. My people of the grass, yet a time has passed. Oh uh, yeah, so here we are at last. Yeah, we represent the past on that ancient path. You see, I outlast all them spells that were cast. So I put this on blast, cause here's what I have. These words were built to last. Yeah, woman of the mask and the bulrush rush mask. This is it just who I be And this is it just what I seen. Yo, protector protect the river green. Yeah, no black sheen, no black sheen.